Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Waddle Partners Market Thinkers Series. Uh, as we've been speaking all series, uh, themes are incredibly important in building portfolios and getting great outcomes. And we've been talking about a lot of themes uh, for the past six or seven episodes and will for the rest of this series. Today, we'll be talking about digitization of retail, both in Australia and overseas. It's essentially uh, an extension of a theme. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke, we spoke about e-commerce and digital payments, and this will be evol evolving the conversation a little bit deeper, and obviously a, a really important topic and a theme that's playing out in the pandemic that we've had over the past 12 or 18 months. Today, we'll be joined by David uh, he's a portfolio manager from Longway Capital, a specialist equity manager in Australia. Uh, Drew, uh, welcome. And can you give us some more in-depth insight into this theme or an extension of a theme? Thanks, Jamie. It was probably a, and welcome, David. Um, it's Thank probably you. a more personal view from me. I don't know if you remember sitting sitting at the front of Dan Murphy's or Bunnings or Woolworths in, in May, June or July <laughs> last year. Oh, yeah. There was this this thing where you could you could order what I wasn't going to use Dan Murphy's Bunnings is probably a better example. You could order online, sit in your car, open your boot, your your things were put into your boot. And so you know online sales, retail sales, e-commerce you never had to get out of your car. And it was like, why would you ever go back to going into a store? Mm. Um, and similarly, you know, if, if I need new clothes and you know what your size is, you go online, you order on Sunday. In some cases, it's there on Tuesday. Um, but then in some cases, it takes two or three weeks. So my view was like, why isn't everyone doing this? And then as you read around it, you find out that retail or online sales are less than 20% of all retail sales. So there's there seems to be a lot of confusion in the digitization and the evolution of the sector. Mm. So we thought it a very important one to discuss. On one hand, everyone's, a lot of people are saying shopping centers are dead. Um, but on the other hand, online sales are nowhere near where you'd expect them to be. So go down to um, Chadston, Drew, and uh, <laughs> after you've visited, you won't, won't think they're dead. I mean, that place is full every day. It <laughs> is the interesting thing, isn't it? So I think, yeah, uh, maybe David, you want to provide your, your, bit of an expert you, you cover a lot of the the specialist retailers in australia that, that have got a you know different types of approaches across different products um if you could give us a bit of an introduction and and your overall views on the the evolution of the sector sure uh and thanks for the intro drew it's um i think that history is quite important like where we've come from why are we only at sort of 20 percent of sales in retail being online in the us and, and less of that in, in australia and what does it mean for things like shopping centres? You know, I mean, when the internet first kind of turned up in the early 2000s, um, the view was newspapers are possibly dead as a result of that, that change in, in the distribution economics of, of information. Newspapers are still here today, um, but their kind of economic power is quite diminished, right? So that's, that's probably you know, worth bearing in mind when we talk about um, things don't necessarily die. I mean, department stores are still around today, um, but their economic power and, and the returns they generate for their owners um, can change quite significantly. Um, there's a few slides we put together just in thinking about the history. So before we kind of get to what we all experienced last year and how the consumer preference for how they shop changes, Yep. It is worth kind of zooming out a little bit and looking at, at how we got here. Um, 
and and so you know we can we can start with the US. The US is is further advanced than Australia in terms of of their share of US retail sales being online. Um, but if we go back to the early '90s, you know when and the way they classify it in the US Census Bureau is um, they include mail order as well as what they call electronic shopping in this like category. You could order steaks via a catalog or something. Is yeah, that that's right. Those old catalog style sharper image and stuff like that. You you. You'd buy interesting things you, you previously thought you had no use for, or I think you used to see them in, in, in the back of um, uh, airline seats in America. You know, yeah, you yeah. order things from the catalogue while you had nothing else to do. Mm. Um, Does that include something like Netflix or, you know, no, I, no. So I these are these are goods that are delivered. No, so Netflix yeah. is a separate. You know, this is retail sales rather than other categories like entertainment. Yeah. Um, but sort of, you know, what was interesting was that the, the department store really started its demise um, in the US in the early 90s. Um, and it was a combination of what they call warehouse clubs and superstores. So I think, you know, Costco and um, I guess the, maybe the closest we've got the equivalent, we've got Costco here in Australia now, but, but Bunnings is kind of like that, like destination mm. outside of department stores and shopping centres. Yep. Um, and that sort of, you know, for the for that sort of 15 year period while the internet was kind of just sort of doing up its shoelaces, um, you know, those warehouse clubs uh, and superstores kind of decimated the share of retail that department stores represented. And then, you know, post kind of the early 2000s, um, when when online e-commerce really got its skates on and Amazon's the obvious kind of poster child for that, but it has broadened out a lot across America now. Um, you know, you saw this flattening out of retail share from those those previous share gainers, um, and this continued market share loss from department stores. So, you know, that's giving the, the kind of thirty year view is quite useful to see where we've come from, and and you know gives us a hint as to where we might be going. Um, and you know, just to just to parallel that with Australia, there's a chart we've got here, slightly different. Um, data set, this is, this is ABS data. So, you know, the way these things are presented are often slightly different how they're categorized. Sure. But again, what's interesting to us here is you can see we've shaded in this chart, this gray area of kind of the early nineties to the sort of just prior to the global financial crisis. Yep. And that's really when the power of, of the Westfield mall and the power of the specialty retailers that were within the mall, um, saw the biggest period of share gain at the expense of, of department stores, right? So that's when, you know, David Jones and Meyer really started to struggle um, as, you know, Westfield brought people into a centre and the consumers chose that actually I'd rather buy from a specialist apparel retailer or a homewares retailer in the mall yep. than wander through a Meyer or a David Jones from department to department, right? And, and you know, this is the last, this goes back to the early 80s, you can go back a hundred years and you can see that that retail changes through time, you know, department stores in their time, yeah. you know, they were a category killer, everything under one roof. You could go to one shop and buy lots of things and see. In the 60s and there. 70s, they, they dominated yeah. the specialty shops, didn't they? That's right. And that was sort of the movement from the high street into the department store. And then the yep. department stores moved into the malls. Mm. The malls then, you know, had the economic power as they were aggregating the traffic, if you like. Um, and, and we started to see that that change again post the financial crisis in Australia. You can see specialties starting to lose market share, department stores continuing to lose relevance in this country as well. Um, so online taking both, which is exactly, interesting. We see online take off, right? And so, yep. 
And so that's, you know, if you think about retail, um, it's always evolving. Um, and retail businesses, um, to be successful, need to continue to, to innovate, not always in the technology sense, but really what does the consumer want? And if what they want changes and how they want to shop changes and they want to sit in their car and order from their phone to have it delivered to their booth, if that's how they want to buy, you have to, you have to be there for them, right? And, and so that's, you know, that's continuous um, in retail. It's a pretty brutal um, sector where if you stand still, you're probably going backwards pretty quickly. And can you, you see, you're right, go through. Do you see department stores going to zero? I know there's forecasts that online sales will be 100% by 2050. Does that send department stores to zero or, or do they pivot? Or is this, or do you have holdings in? Um, no, no, we don't have holdings. Viral. In no, and, and I, the only caution I have is I, I don't necessarily think online goes to 100% um, mm. by 2050. And, and the reason is people are social animals, right? Like, like it's, it's easy to buy clothes if you know what your size is and what the style is and so on, but you might want to go and try them on at some point. Um, you know, part of shopping could be a, a social experience. There is a bit of look and feel, and we'll get to this later because, you know, our view is that omni-channel, right, the combination of, of online and physical stores sure. um, is, is actually not a bad kind of model relative to having no online presence. I think we all probably agree that that's, that's probably not a great model to have zero online presence as a retailer. But to be 100% online, there's questions over whether that's the optimal model either, right? And so you've got, you know, Amazon, you know, um, have, have toyed with physical stores through time. Yep. They've bought Whole Foods. Um, they're, they're looking to open up stores in different categories. Um, and, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether a couple of the pure online players we have in Australia, like Kogan or Temple and Webster, you know, one one strategic thing to watch out for is whether they either acquire an offline retailer or organically go into that space. Um, so I just think that the nature of how people want to interact with with um, their retail purchases, you know, maybe online is fifty percent, maybe seventy percent. It could be a really high number. I don't think it's a hundred percent. And probably very different according to product. I think so. I think if you're buying a, I don't know, a USB stick or something, like you just care about features and functionality and you're happy to select it, whether it's from Amazon or Officeworks online site, you know, send it through, um, you know, other products you probably want to touch and feel. And, and, and then there's part of the shopping experience, which, which is, you know, if you think about what some um, retail outlets are selling, it's the experience as much as the good. You know, people line up to, to go into a Gucci store. Um, you know, it, there's something about that that we've got to be careful just assuming it's a purely transactional thing. Um, for some retail, it, it's an experience as well. Uh, that's part of what people get out of it. I get upsold on shoes whenever I go to the shopping centre. That's probably why. Yeah. You don't go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In this chart here, is it kind of a little bit misleading because some of these online sales could have come from specialist uh, shops and, and and from department stores. Yes. And, and then I got a second question is why haven't it seems like um, uh, all these organisations that make up department stores and specialists have been disrupted by a new group of a new group of companies where they are in the block, box seat to always extend their product range to online. And it's been a very, very slow uptake for anyone, you know, if you talked about 
David Jones's uh, strategy to get online or Meyer's strategy to get online. And they probably addressed this at sea level 10 years ago, but they've been unable to execute anything. And that, that, that's a very similar story to most deport, department stores and to a degree, a large proportion of specialists. Yeah, you see this time and time again across many industries, not just retail. And that is that the guys, like when they become the apex predator in the late 80s of, of you know, they've optimised for that current environment, it does become very hard to change. You know, this is the Clay Christensen um, uh, innovators dilemma and disruptive um, sort of business model where someone who becomes so optimal as a business in, in a certain environment, actually that becomes their Achilles heel. They find it harder to then, to then kind of adapt to what's new. Whereas if you're Rosalind Kogan um, and you're starting with, with nothing and you realise you can, you can bring goods in from China, advertise them online and, and, and ship them out, um, you're building a new business from scratch. You have nothing to lose. And, and in the early days, you know, the other thing that happens is the incumbents don't really see it as a threat. They're like, well, mm. we're not in those categories. The guy's doing 5 million of turnover. What does it matter to us? We're doing billions, right? Yep. And so you see that time and time again where um, incumbents get disrupted, not because it's not obvious perhaps to lots of people what they could do. Mm. They just get trapped by their own success and and sure. you know see these things as too small to bother with. And, and then it's too late, right? It's like that boiling frog analogy where eventually the water's so hot and, and they're trapped in these long-term leases. It's perfect. You know? <laughs> um, so what used to be an asset for, for department stores, even within shopping centres, was their rent per square metre was a lot lower. You know, they took up, you know, they anchored these centres, they took up, you know, multiples of the floor space of everyone else. Um, and so they could have lower rent, which means they could, you know, in theory, um, be a low-cost provider. Mm. They lost out, really, against specialists um, who said, well, we're not going to do everything. We'll just do shoes better or we'll just do dresses better or, or you know, selling electronic goods better. Um, and then the internet came along to compound that problem. So I just think you see this time and time again where um, it looks obvious in hindsight to us watching a, a chart of market share falling consistently. Sure. Um, it, it just is hard for incumbents to change. Did you have some an example on that, on the margins there as well? You know, talking about a department store margin versus a, Omni-channel. Yeah, we've got, some, we've got some examples later on where yeah. we sort of look at the pure economics. Um, we can go to that now if you like, or we can come back to that a bit later. No, no, don't mind. Keep going. Um, yeah, well, the only because the only thing that's again, I think, important to understand when we think about the history of of how we got here is the Aussie companies um, had an enormous break of luck in all this, right? And so you can see there, there's a there's a, a snippet from the Sydney Morning Herald in 2012, mm. um, where um, and I'll show you another chart in a moment that gives you some some sort of numbers and context around this. But but when the mining boom was going on in Australia, the other thing that was happening obviously was that the Aussie dollar was soaring. It was one of the sort of better performing currencies, and at a dollar ten versus the US, mm. Australians suddenly had all of this purchasing power, and and started and and the online sites in offshore markets, which were available to Australian consumers, had developed far ahead of what was available locally. Mm. And so what we saw is a lot of consumers, you know, shopping overseas. And, and so I've just highlighted the quote there, 
um, about, you know, this is referring to a David Jones shock profit warning that happened um, at the time, but, you know, it, it highlighted this issue of they had not been, they being pretty much all Australian retailers, they had not been taking online seriously and it became really clear just how far behind the rest of the world they were, right? Now, normally, that's kind of it, right? You're five years behind, the competitors are there, the consumers have chosen they want to consume in this way, and away you go. Suddenly, um, you know, the disruption starts and, and you can never catch up. The advantage um, that the Aussie retailers had, and what we've got here in this chart is a chart of the currency, which we talked about. So you can see the Aussie dollar there going from, um, you know, I mean, it dropped sharply in the GFC, but, but you know, 70 to 80 cents to, to north of a dollar versus the US. And what we've overlaid that with, so that's the, the, the sort of teal line there. The, the black line that we've overlaid there <laughs> is the Google search trends from Australian um, Google users searching for Amazon. Now we could have done online shopping or you know, we're using Amazon here as a, as a kind of catch-all phrase for what people were looking for. Um, but you know, that's where we saw that, that sharp increase in interest. Um, Australians looking to buy online, finding that actually these offshore offerings were terrific. You, know, you could buy lots of products. They had lots of, you know, um, uh, sort of they've invested for 15 years in better experience for online shopping. Yep. Um, and then when the mining boom collapsed, the Aussie dollar fell back down to, to under 80 cents again. That kind of opportunity for the consumer uh, contracted. And you can see there the interest in online shopping declined as well. I actually now, remember that, buying an engagement ring in 2012 via a US site. <laughs> perfect timing. You, you, you could like, can, yeah, see all around the, you could, yeah, 3D review of the um, diamond mm -hmm. you were buying. And delivered in about ten days, but I would not be looking at it now with the dollar where it is. And and you probably couldn't even have that experience in Australia at that time, right? You had to go down to you know boutique jeweler or Michael Hill. You just it was the gap was huge in what you could do. Um, and so that was the second chance that you know whether you were a department store or specialty retailer, um, you know there was a window of opportunity here where those foreign competitors were, were kind of held off by this falling Aussie dollar. And a lot of the locals, even though it wasn't really noticeable at the time, and we didn't really see the benefit of this kind of five years plus of investment until COVID, but a lot of specialty retailers really doubled down on you know, investments in this part of their business. Yep. Direct consumer relationships, building out their online presence. Um, and you can go back and you can see you know, for some of these companies, you know, back in 2014, 15, 16, you know, stated objectives by management, right? We want to get online to 15, 20, 25% of our sales on a five-year view. They realised they had a near-death experience. They were given a second chance and, and, you know, good businesses don't waste second chances. Is that much of a... So you're looking at that uh, with a weaker, weaker Australian dollar. Has the in, in introduction of Amazon had much of a change in the last few years? How long ago was that now? I, I was in my notes. I said, has Aldi had big, a bigger impact on, you know, on the consumer in Australia that Amazon has so far? Well, Aldi probably has. Um, I mean, Aldi's classic. Now, there's nothing about online that I think Aldi exploited. They, I think, looked at the market and said, there's a genuine opportunity in grocery retailing at the value end of the market mm. um, that they do extremely well in Europe. 
Um, their view was probably that Coles and Woolworths at a certain level compete for a, a mainstream dollar um, and that Metcash and the independents probably were worth having a go against um, at that value side of the market. And so that was, I guess, a more traditional strategy of bringing a different product, a different ranging you know, approach. Took them time because they had to build out sites. So you know, one of the difference here is you don't need to build out sites. Amazon don't need to find real estate. Yeah, they need warehousing. But really, you know, if you look at them or Kogan or any of these pure online players, um, you know, it's not about real estate that, that holds them back. Um, and, and so that brings us back to that kind of that Westfield argument around what does it mean for a shopping centre? You know, if I was a specialty retailer 15 years ago, if I wasn't in a Westfield, if I was on a high street, um, uh, you know, I probably had a quarter of the traffic that, that Westfield could bring me. Um, so I needed to be there. I needed to pay the 18 or $20,000 per square metre to, to be in the Westfield to have a business. That's changed, right? Mm. If I've now got another channel to the consumer by the internet, um, it, it's not like I'm not going to be in Westfield. Um, I may have a smaller store. I may have fewer stores. But the, the power that Westfield has over bringing me consumers has diminished quite significantly. Um, if I look out, you know, 15 or 20 years, it might not be the case today. Um, but as we'll see when we look at some of the numbers from the companies themselves, these traditional, especially retailers who have gone omni-channel and, and moved into online, you know, some of them are, are 30, 40% of their business coming direct from, from their relationship with the consumer. That does change the bargaining power between them and a Westfield or any shopping centre owner. Are there, is there much data on Amazon's rollout here? I know that somehow they're a public company, but they don't release data on there or, or you know, the minutiae of, of the data in different countries, do they? So you don't know how well they're actually doing down here. No, we can get some, there's some proxies and things like traffic and they do release some of their accounts here. Um, yeah. So they are doing well, but, you know, if you if you look at it versus the, the growth that, that traditional retailers have seen in the online channel, some of the homegrown pure play players like a Kogan or Temple and Webster have done in the online channel, um, it's far more competitive than potentially it was when they rolled out in the US in the early 2000s. You know, that that delay, everyone's seeing the Amazon playbook and, and, and getting in front of it, um, they, have, they clearly have some pretty profound competitive advantages, but it's not an infinite list of advantages, right? There are some things like simply having an online channel to a brand that consumers are already familiar with, whether it's a Smiggle or a Peter Alexander or an Adairs, um, that, that you should have that in place, right? A lot of, a lot of uh, competitors to Amazon didn't have that in place 15 years ago, and that's why that kind of steamrolled them. So um, Amazon are doing well here, but I don't think they're doing as well as if they'd put their foot down on the accelerator 15 years ago um, and, and the Aussies didn't have that kind of second chance to, to get into the market. Because apparently they have something like 40% of online sales in the US, but that's only something like 5% of total retail, isn't it? And they wouldn't be near that in Australia. I don't think they're, they're that high in Australia, but I don't, I don't have the numbers. Um, yeah. yeah. And do you, so you think, do you view Kogan as being a kind of a leader? They're almost an Australian Amazon um, in terms of retail. I was looking, they're, they're kind of the test fail learn. I was reading, you know, Bezos's 
approach, which is try everything out. If it doesn't work, move on. <laughs> um, it yeah. seems like that's the Kogan, you know, um, method, trying insurance, trying broadband, trying everything. Yeah. Uh, look, I, we quite like that, that idea um, because particularly when you're dealing with consumers, you can find wonderful businesses that you would never, if you sat around as a group, you know, if you've got consultants in and you said, well, let's, let's build, you know, matrices of what we think consumers are going to like and, and pick trends like consumers do, you know, unusual things. Right. So rather than sitting in an ivory tower and deciding this is the strategy and this will work and it'll be this product in this market, at this price point, um, sometimes you just have to try things and, and, and find out what happens. Um, and so when we think about innovation, a lot of that, that, that's what innovation, you know, to us really is. It's experimentation, find out what works. Mm. Um, because sometimes you can find things that work really well that are completely counterintuitive. Like, well, who knew that a consumer would want to, to do that particular thing, you know? Whether it's a price point, a particular product, um, you know, and we sort of see it all the time. And it's easy to then go to the end of a, an obviously successful business and then, and then kind of draw the narrative backwards and say, well, that was always obvious that was going to happen. But it's not the case in real time. So I think Kogan have done that really well. I think, you know, in many ways, um, it looks like Kogan, look at what Amazon has done and figure if we can move quickly and do that in Australia before they get here, mm. um, you know, we can own that, that kind of um, position in people's mind as being that thing that Amazon has proven works so well overseas. And so that's, you know, we see that with a lot of the traditional retailers as well. Now, you know, the specialties as they move into online, as they, as they experiment with, you know, mobile ordering and, and some of the things they tried through the, um, through the pandemic, that, that to us is innovation, trial and error, what works, what doesn't work, try things. Um, and, and if they work, put more behind it. If they fail, you learn something from it and, and move on to the next thing. Um, and, and so it's more, you know, you, you need talent to do that. You need to have, you know, the, the, if you want to build software, you need to buy uh, or hire software engineers. Um, but, you know, it's not really about setting these grandiose goals, you know, setting aside a $50 million budget and building this this fantastic thing and then taking it to market and realising it, it, it missed, the mark, missed the mark by a mile. So. I had a bad experience. Is Jamie on mute? Were you talking, Jamie? He's unplugged his microphone. Oh, I had a bad experience on um, drop shipping. Is that a concept worth kind of understanding? You know, we had a ordered a, what do you call it? A, a, you know, a storage cabinet arrived, broken, obviously shipped straight from wherever it was made. Uh, mm. It seems like a pretty important concept for a lot of companies. Yeah, it's, I mean. It's not to, new though, is in it? In some ways, no, it's not new. And, and drop shipping is part of like that idea of, okay, I've got a really light, business i'm just a website and once you've once you've transacted like i'll take my clip and i'll stand back right so someone else will fulfill that they'll ship it from somewhere else if there's a problem with it you're kind of on your own you have to deal with the the, the seller and, and and resolve that um and so at a spreadsheet level that's got terrific kind of economic benefits because you know you're simply a platform enabling a transaction um some consumers aren't huge fans of that if they have a bad experience and they realize there's no one to, to really, there's no brand behind it, right? Amazon goes, well, that wasn't me or eBay says, well, you're dealing with the seller. Um, uh, so, so, you know, there's, I mean, there's a joke that every business in the world 
um, simply goes through or every industry is either a, 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 some, someone that bundles or unbundles, right? And we go through all these trends through time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the idea of drop shipping or not, not owning inventory or being responsible for the, the, for the storage of it or delivery of it, um, you know, at, at a certain point can be a really powerful kind of economic model. And Harvey Norman's done that for years, right? Like you buy a, a Panasonic TV from Harvey Norman, they get Panasonic to deliver it from their warehouse to you, right? They don't have a warehouse full of inventory. So that idea isn't, isn't new. Um, but at the same time, Harvey Norman are kind of there as the brand to say, well, if there's a problem with the television, we can help coordinate, you know, the return of it and the warranty and so on. So um, it, it's not new. It has, you know, benefits and advantages in terms of the capital that it consumes in a business if you don't have to hold inventory or build warehouses. Um, but, but there's another side to it too, where if you're trying to build, you know, a quality experience for the consumer, um, it may not deliver that. It depends on what you're trying to do as a, as a business. Um, Amazon want to be the everything store, right? So their view is the breadth and the price point and the value more than compensate for the occasional issue you might have on, on that side of things. Someone like Adairs who you know, are far closer to the consumer. They have this linen lovers club and they, they actually, a lot of their product is their own self-designed product. Um, they probably care more about the total experience that the consumer has. Um, and again, that's, that's the experimentation, right? It's not um, simply enough for, for boards and executives to go, that seems to work overseas or that seems to work in that sector. Let's, let's try that approach. Um, it, it may not be right for their brand. It may not be right for their consumers. Um, their consumers might want the exact opposite, right? So there's, like a lot of industries, there's no one answer. It's just the one that fits best for what you're trying to achieve. You see a lot of five-year plans turn into new five-year plans (laughs) in retailers over the last 10 years, haven't you? That's right. And look, it's a graveyard of of failure too, right? I mean, we specialise in small caps and small caps in general, like the first thing you try and do is is survive, right? You just want to make it as a business and not die and and dying in small caps and and particularly in, in parts of retail is kind of it's a feature of this part of the market it happens a lot um you, you know you do the research and you pick the quality businesses to try and avoid that um but it happens people try things they don't work they don't get second chances and that's it yep can you guys hear me now good now yes yeah, yeah. i think that's a really good point uh, david the the innovation that's available to businesses that are online is a lot greater you know i drove past i drove through swan hill on the weekend and there was a thing called k hub which was obviously one of kmart's fantastic ideas about creating and reinventing themselves and and uh, they probably have spent 50 or 70 million dollars on the concept of a k hub um, versus what you can do digitally and you know try things and the cost isn't prohibitive so you can be innovative you know you don't have to take it up the chain all the way to the board and say hey we need to find 50 million dollars for this idea that might might not work so yeah no i completely agree i mean one of the, i think one of the best things kogan has has done is Kind of be really clear with their shareholders that's what they're going to do we're going to try all these things mm. and if we shut some of them down in three years time because they didn't work mm. like that, that's part of of the business model mm. um whereas you know if you lift the bar too high and you have the k hub and you invest tens of millions of dollars um 
you know, failure becomes something that no one wants to admit. You might continue with things well beyond that point of recognition. Um, and, and, you know, as shareholders, we're more pragmatic about try things, they, they, some things don't work. Um, but that culture of trial and error, um, that's a big part of, of innovation. I saw it as I was listening to the, is it the Walt Disney biography? And it talked about cannibalizing your own business, which is kind of what department stores or some of the retailers have to do. And no one really wants to do that to re totally reinvent yourself. No, well, no, no one wants to do that full stop. Like any industry you look at, whether it's telecommunications, financial services, retail, like the, um, the, the concept of self-cannibalization is, you know, very difficult for most people to deal with. Um, and, and I guess experience and, and history would tell you most companies and most executives um, decide not to. The right? tenures only last about four years on average, don't they? Oh, so. well, that's right. You know, like, yeah. like, you know, when shareholders tenure extends to two or three CEO cycles, um, if you're a long-term holder of a business, um, there can be a mismatch of incentives between mm. what you can see and what matters in the next four or five years and, and what actually matters for shareholders who are going to be there for 10 or 15 years. I totally agree. That's a whole nother session though, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, at least one. Yeah. At least one. Uh, Is it worth examples. Yeah, talking, talking through a few real... Um, examples in Australia. It seems like their small cap sector is just rife with specialty retailers that are, you know, looking at did did the pandemic actually save quite a few businesses that were that were online? Mm. Um, or what do you what do you find interesting in the in the sector? Yeah, so so there are a lot of specialist um, retailers in small caps. You know, there's probably JB Hi-Fi is the, the most notable exception in, in the top 100. Um, but then, you, you know, if you look at the retailers in large caps, it tends to be Woolworths, Coles, uh, Bunnings, Kmart within West Farmers, so they're in office work. So they're a different scale of retailer. Um, Meyer is well and truly a small cap these days as it, as it continues to, to diminish in its um, kind of market cap. But yeah, so if we look at a lot of the, the small cap retailers, um, again, just taking a step back from the last few years, you know, how did they respond to what was going on with the general kind of trends to, to online and, and the internet before the pandemic. And you can see we, we've got a slide here where we look at um, a, a couple of measures of, of how they were going direct, how they were getting closer to their consumers. Mm. One thing that quite a few of these, these um, companies have are loyalty programs. And that's, you know, it's really fashionable today to talk about customer acquisition costs, right? So yep. advertising on Google to, to or, or depends on your sales and marketing channel, but, but you know, acquiring a customer um, to get their, their details or to get them to sign up to Netflix or, or some subscription service. Um, you know, really the first part of customer acquisition cost is, um, can I have permission to talk to you directly, right? So, you know, we've all been through it. You go to Kathmandu, you just want to buy a pair of socks and they say, do you want to join our, our loyalty program? Just give us your email address. We'll give you a $10 voucher and, and, and then you're on the database and away you go. And 50 so, emails a week. Well, that's right. <laughs> and so that, that's the balance of being annoying versus being, you know, having a conversation with a customer. But, you know, we've got four examples here, you know, Accent Group, Adairs, and Adairs are quite unique because they're members of what they call this Linen Lovers Club. They actually pay to be members, right? Oh, really? So um, they get access to better deals, but they pay. Um, to, and, and they've got almost a million people 
who, who pay an annual sort of fee to be part of that, all of these companies, um, you know, pushed their membership and loyalty programs coming out of that experience in kind of 2012, 13, 14, right? So, so part of being a direct business to consumers, knowing who they are, and if they're at your till and you can just offer them a $10 voucher and get them to sign up, that's pretty interesting, right? So if we think about omni-channel, if you think about what, what benefits does having a store provide you as a retailer that being pure online doesn't, you've got an opportunity to actually capture these people in your database um, at, at a different point. It doesn't all have to happen online. And so you can see, you know, there's a few different examples here. Um, Accent Group were probably the most aggressive through that period um, in, in growing their, uh, their online, sorry, their loyalty um, membership base. And then the second thing you can see here, um, and this is kind of influenced by the early stages of COVID. So fiscal 2020 is the second data point we've got there, which, which has that kind of last quarter of, you know, that, that kind of um, March to June quarter of 2020 when, when everything went online. Um, but for many of them, if you went back to 2017, you would see them talking in their annual reports about their online strategy, about the investments they've been making and about their longer term kind of objectives of where they want to take the business. And so that's, you know, we've, we've seen that quite consistently. I mean, Nick Scarlett was interesting because they never, ever talked about online, felt it wasn't appropriate for them at all. Yeah. Um, and then in the pandemic, they realised they had no other choice and they could sell not a sofa, but a side table and a lamp and a few other bits and pieces online. So they they started at that point. David, what does yeah. Accent Group do? I don't know that. Oh, so Accent Group have a range of uh, footwear specialists. So the Athlete's Foot, for example, is okay. one of theirs. Um, and they have, you know, Plato push shoes and a few other um, footwear brands. Um, it's, it's amazing, this chart of loyalty program. You've got Super Retail, Super Retail, Seven and a half million members in Mel in Australia. Super yep. cheap auto, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's super cheap, auto. is it? Um, Rebel Sport, you know, yeah, so okay. a couple of their, their big brands. BCF, which is, you know, an outdoor sort of brand. They've basically got one in four of us as a member. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're, they've pushed it pretty hard. And as you know, if you've ever been to one of those stores, I, I resist pretty hard because I don't want all those emails. Um, but you know, they've, they've had a, a pretty good sort of nudge at getting people on their database. Well, another episode could be how the inbox is dead for a marketing tool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And if you see how your kids use email, um, <laughs> you know, they never, they've got like, my kids have thousands of unread emails because they just, they use it to sign up for stuff yep. and then, you know, they don't want to deal with it. So they, oh, they have two, you know, one, they, you know, they just use to sign up stuff too. And then they have their real one, which is not even on a platform. You know, it's some gaming platform. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's an interesting point because I think things that are effective early on, it does change, right? As you mm. say, people just ignore emails coming in the promotional, you know, the sale on shoes or the gym equipment or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, but, you know, people also might start to ignore Google AdWords or, you know, uh, Facebook um, yeah. ads or, you know, so you've got to find in the early days, the return on investment in spending money advertising on Google and Facebook was incredible, right? Mm. But, but that, like capital markets are pretty efficient at figuring out when there's excess returns available. And so, you know, a lot of those things, kind of the, 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 the juice has been squeezed pretty much um, from some of those. Uh, and so, 
things change, they move um, to other parts of, you know, how people interact with, with brands or how they want to buy. Um, and that's where, you know, we have a view at the moment, like we all sit here, so online's obvious and these are all the ways of participating. Things will change in the future, right? So that continued experimentation um, will remain critical to figure out what's the next thing. You know, having online as a retailer has become table stakes, right? You just kind of need it to play. And so the question about what COVID did for retailers is really interesting because in some categories, like homewares and home furniture, um, because there was, you know, this whole nesting thing and people were at home and they were refurnishing their homes. And the other thing that's in the background that people don't talk about as much these days but remains important is how important house prices and credit conditions are for retail generally. But actually a lot of, you know, homewares retailers that, that would otherwise have gone out of business, actually COVID saved them. Online or not, they, they did really well. Other categories, it's a lot harder. You know, if you weren't, if you didn't have an online strategy, um, you didn't have maybe a balance sheet to survive through that period, um, you, you may have gone out of business. We haven't really seen the full impact of that yet. Um, it's hard to know, you know, how many people were saved through the lack of international travel and people upping what they spend on goods and services anyway plus the ability of, of JobKeeper to, to build a bridge for those smaller businesses to make it. But I think, you know, if you look out kind of three to five years, the consumer preference to shop online and in store means that if you haven't made those investments, you may have got through COVID, um, but it's going to be harder to compete in the future if you don't have those, those different ways of interacting with the customer. Do you see a <clears throat> kind of winner-take-all like in many other tech sectors in Australia, or do you expect it to kind of stay fragmented as it is, or probably different every decade? Well, you haven't, it's, um, I mean, Westfield was probably the closest to winner take all in retail we've, we've seen for quite a while, um, in, in this country at least. Now, if you go to the US, it's such a big market that you had Simon and, you know, a few other mall owners over there. Um, Retail, it is interesting. I mean, I think consumers like choice, they tend to shop quite widely. Um, you know, we haven't really seen winner take all in retail. Um, and that's, it's different to platform economics that you see in other, in, in pure tech. So that's not really, um, that's not our base case that, that yeah. one of these companies will emerge and dominate the entire retail landscape. Yeah. It's been tried before. Um, you know, whether it's a conglomerate or the department store model, um, it, it just seems like that ability to continually adapt to what the consumer wants is really hard for any one, one player. Um, there may be winner take all in things like um, other layers, you know, it could be payments, it could be Shopify might become winner take all in, in a particular part of the technology stack that powers retailers to compete against Amazon. Mm. Um, but retailing itself doesn't feel like us to, to look like going to win a tackle. Uh, yes. And have you got a particular favorite or, or one to watch or you, you, is it, you, you can't short companies, so. No, no, we don't, we don't short. I mean, the dares is one we do like. Um, and there's a couple of slides I'll show you on, on, on why. Um, this is the one, the, the chart on the left here actually comes out of, you know, their own numbers they've started to provide to the market. And, and in a moment, you know, I'll come back and answer that question as to what, what do the online economics look like versus offline, um, if you break down the margin structure of a business. Mm. But the interesting point 
you know, that Adair's made was that um, a consumer of theirs that shops both channels tends to spend more in both channels, right? So a consumer that spends in-store and online spends more online than a pure online consumer, right? And mm. the same with someone who comes into the store. Um, mm. Now, you know, you can, th there may be a, a selection effect here um, that, that flatters these numbers, but what they're seeing across their book is that if we engage with a consumer in all sorts of different ways, maybe they see something online and they come into the store, which is why they're spending more. Maybe they're in the store and we don't have it in stock in that store, so they buy it online um, at another store and have it delivered to their home. You know, it's not, it's not sort of clear why this is happening. It comes back to that point before. Sometimes you just need to try things and, and you get surprising results rather than um, always have a hypothesis um, as to why consumers do things. You know, there's that's, a, that's one of the most fascinating charts I've seen, uh, David. It's four boxes, but it's, yeah. um, it's quite, quite interesting. Do you see, we had a couple of groups in our office in the last few weeks talking about um, tech to enhance that. You know, so if you had shopped online and you'd looked at uh, pillowcase at a desk and then suddenly you walk into the store and that pillowcase is um, in store, um, it, it would push a offer to you and say, well, you know, you, you've looked at... Um, You've looked at that pillowcase and vice versa. You know, if you looked at it in store, then you go home, suddenly 48 hours later, you get an offer to buy that pillowcase at a 5% discount or a 7% discount. So it's kind of using, you know, trying to get the tech that's available on your online shopping and where you are online back in store and then, you know, couple the two, two up that they are actually... Um, using the interface of online and the interface of being in store together to get the outcome and sale. It looks like That's it happens absolutely. naturally anyway. Well, I mean, maybe they're doing, I don't, I don't sort of know the detail of, of mm. what exactly sits behind this. It could be some of that, right? It could be someone at the checkout when, when they're buying the sheet set, maybe the person that probably isn't the case yet, but the technology should allow for it. Like to your point, Oh, this person was looking at pillowcases two days ago, maybe try and, package that with what they're at the till trying to buy the, the, so, i mean there's a the whole heap of people trying to do this this one was on bluetooth beacons so it yeah. knew where in the store you were so that, that yeah. they make some made some assumptions what you're looking at yes i think um there's opportunity right is i guess the point like if you're in both domains if you're online and you're in store as a as a retailer hmm. you have opportunity to kind of um see a consumer in two different modes and Adairs are already getting the benefit of that. There's a, I wanted to read, there's a great quote from, um, it's attributed to Ogilvy, um, as in the person who found Ogilvy, um, but it's not, sorry, I'm just trying to find this. I'm pretty sure I wrote it down because I wanted to, um, oh, here it is. So, so this is the Ogilvy quote. Now, Ogilvy's in advertising, um, and, and his point when you're advertising goods is you don't know what's in a consumer's mind and you know you don't know what they're going to do right so being too prescriptive about an ad um, can constrain what can happen and so Ogilvy's quote was that people don't think what they feel they don't say what they think and they don't do what they say right and, and so the point about that is there's lots of layers of what happens in in what a consumer does what people buy mm. and and they often can't even explain themselves why they do it right and so 
that's that's why some consumer businesses can be wonderful businesses because you're tapping into something. Um, you know, people might buy Apple phones, uh, iPhones instead of Androids because they're status signaling, right? That might be their genuine reason. Um, I, you know, this confers a, a status benefit to me. They probably don't want to say that, right? If you ask them why you bought, bought the iPhone, they might give reasons like, you know, the, the speed of the chip or they, you know, give technical reasons. But their, their, their real reason that they bought it was, was a status signaling reason. And so... Again, that's where trial and error and experimentation comes into it. Um, you can't always be sure why people are doing the thing they're doing, even if you ask them, even if you had to do the survey, mm. they may not tell you the real reason sure. that, um, that's behind it. So, so that's that's a dares in terms of um, you know Omni. Uh, we can come back to the one-on-one -on -one video calling, but that was some of the the things that Accent were doing with a group called Hero through the through the um, the pandemic period, just rolling out new technology quickly to provide this sort of one-on-one -on -one VIP consultation service to people buying shoes. Yeah, great idea. And that worked for them? It worked it? really well. You know, the conversion rates were far higher than they kind of thought. Um, and, and they've continued to roll that out. So it was a, it was a pandemic response. The stores were, were kind of dark. They couldn't have people in there, but you could have a couple of staff in there. Mm. And so, you know, they thought, well, rather than just buy a shoe from a picture on the website, um, let's have someone who we're employing who's in the store. Mm. They were they were fulfilling other online orders from the stores. Who can talk you through it? So yeah, that that's an example of an innovation they tried and they can continue with uh, to grow. So this is some some margin analysis we did. Now you know averages are always dangerous because you know there's always exceptions and and you always find big differences across any. Um, retail sector based on lots of things, you know, whether they have own brands or third-party brands, um, uh, et cetera. But this was done prior to, to COVID. We used 2019 as a base. And, and the point of this chart was really to say, why, why would a retailer go down the omni-channel path? Why would you invest in, in retail? How does it look? Um, and so what was interesting to us was, was two sides of the, of the coin. One was... Um, revenue productivity, uh, and the other was the pure cost of doing business. Now, the two biggest costs in a retailer um, are their rent and their employees, and most of the employees are, are in the store. They're not, they're not head office employees. Yep. And so we use Kogan as the, as the kind of pure play, if you like. Um, they're in general merchandise. I think it's fair to say most of their sales are general merchandise. And so we compared them with four... Um, you know, other kind of general merchandise players and then and then kind of best of breed with, with JB Hi-Fi at the time being considered one of the, the best of breed players. So, you know, he had Kogan in 2019 doing, you know, um, almost $450 million of sales with 150 FTEs, right? So almost $3 million of sales per FTE. Why? Because he didn't have to have people wandering around, you know, the, the, the consumer chooses the product, the consumer checks out themselves. You don't need someone there handling every sale. Mm. Big W and Target, we're talking about $200,000 of revenue per employee. So much bigger sales number, but huge employee base. And even if you go to someone like JB Hi-Fi, who's considered you know, one of the most productive um, floor employee bases in retailing, um, you're talking about 600,000 per employee. So that was the first thing that was pretty obvious, right? That, that actually you're generating sales. Yes, you need other investments. And we've talked about some of those in technology and other things, 
Mm. Um, but you don't need a lot more people to do it. And Kogan's up to about a billion now? Oh, it's not quite that. It's probably uh, it's probably north of 600. Yeah. Oh, it could be. Yeah, it could be close to a billion. Depends on the run rate for the second half. But yeah, um, it's it's... Without adding many staff either, would they? Yeah, <laughs> no, well, I mean, we'd have to, probably. We'd have to update this, but my guess is their leverage. I mean, the thing we're a bit cautious about, you know, COVID, because there's some one-off benefits that will definitely roll off for a lot of retailers. And so when we think about buying businesses, we're thinking, you know, three to five years out. Um, sure. And so some of the numbers that come through COVID, you know, their sales per FTE could have gone, you know, north of four million. Is that sustainable? Maybe not. But, but you Mask know, sales or something. Yeah. Well, not for them, but for people like Redbubble, they saw a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, market, market doesn't seem too worried about that, though. Does it? Like, the Redbubble went from 50 cents to six bucks. And uh, it's, you know, the market doesn't seem to worry about that it's a one-off. No, I think, um, look, we have different views on, on some of those names in terms of how much what you see is is sustainable versus will roll off. Hmm. We're pretty conservative in, in how we invest. And when we get to the stock example after this, you'll, you'll see that. But, yeah, um, sure. you know, we, like, you, yeah, you want to be really careful about, there's one thing to say, there was, a, there was a good business before COVID that did really well and we think it'll go back to being good or better. Hmm. It's another to say there was a business that kind of had never made money. Suddenly they were wildly profitable. We're not quite sure what that looks like. Yeah, maybe, maybe they are. Yeah, maybe that maybe that was the thing that made them, and they'll they'll go on to greater things, mm. or maybe a bit like there was a company in New Zealand that sells hand sanitizer. Mm. Um, you know, it, I don't know if hand sanitizer sales in twenty twenty two are going to be anything like what they were in twenty twenty, right? So that's your line of business. You want to be- <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing that was really interesting when we did this was, you know, even if you're not drop shipping, right? Even if you're holding all the inventory yourself uh, in a warehouse and fulfilling and delivering that, um, uh, the rent per square metre of what we call Westfield versus warehouse. Now, you know, Westfield, we ended up using GPT's property compendium because they have, yeah. they have some, some tier one malls in Australia as well. Um, you know, you can kind of see what the rent per square metre is to have, you know, a shop front in a Westfield or a, or a GPT yeah. mall versus what you're paying in a warehouse. Right. And so you've got these two and you can see. So what's happening here in the chart to the right, these two red kind of areas of cost. So these are these are all normalized to 100 percent of sales. Rent and employees, this massive percentage of cost suddenly gets crunched right down um, in the in the online world. Mm. Now, these these other costs go up, um, you know, because you have to invest in in websites and other parts of your business. Mm. but you know it's pretty attractive. Yep. So this is you know this is using real world data, putting it together with some illustrative analysis, and then assuming you know a 50-50 split to say, well, can online take um, or omnichannel take uh, the margin of a retailer from 10% to 17%? And we're not talking about a one-off bump. We're sort of saying, can that be a sustainable structural change? In, in you know how their business um, looks, where does that come from? It comes from paying less for rent and needing fewer people to fulfil those sales of consumers that choose to come through online. Again, this chart kind of um, 
doesn't emphasize it to the same degree. If you're saying you can take a business that's uh, 10% margin, you're increasing it to a 16% margin, yep. um, net margin. I mean, if your profit here was a billion, you're essentially taking it to 1.6 billion, which is yep. phenomenal difference in terms of total valuation of a business like that. That's right. So it's a structural change in, in the quality of these businesses if that's what the outcome um, they can achieve is. Now, to date, we're probably more conservative. We don't assume a 70% uplift in sustainable margin increase because we're not 100% sure what the mix will be and what other costs are involved here but sure. in terms of the, you know, the online other costs. But what we are seeing consistently in commentary from management across a wide range of retailers is they are seeing an upward shift in their margin, right? Mm. And the other thing to, to remember is that um, what, you know, some people think of as uh, a liability, oh, you're in you know, Westfield and you're, you're a traditional retailer, in many cases in the eyes of the consumer um, does have some value, right? Like buying from, and, uh, buying from JB Hi-Fi online um, mm. does confer some value so that they can work, you know, two sides of this, this market, the online and the in-store, um, to reinforce their quality proposition and their differentiation. It's not simply a matter of people are going online to shop for price. All the other things you need to do as a good retailer, strong merchandising of product, good inventory control, appropriate price points, you know, managing your, your, your discounting through a cycle, you know, all of those skills transfer into the online world. And if, even if they get half of that uplift and that's permanent, you know, that's a significant change in, in the economics and the attractiveness of, of this business. Um, and, you know, probably oops, um, a significant change in the market power of the shopping centres. Um, and we're already starting to see this where the retailers who have a strong omni strategy are pushing back on this number here, this occupancy cost. You know, why am I giving you 18% of my sales? I think that number should be lower um, because I have choice now. I have other ways to access my consumer. So the final, you know, just as, a, as an example of how we think about, um, you know, bringing that down to the stock level, um, we've, we've got a couple of examples, or sorry, a couple of companies here as an example in the same effective category. So, so Temple and Webster and Adairs are both in, in homewares, um, but Temple and Webster is this sort of pure online player. So they've been growing faster. Um, in, in that online space, it's their kind of uh, channel to market. They have no, no stores at the moment, maybe down the track they get into them. Now, again, as a, as a, um, a background, we're operating, we invest in, in kind of the pointy end of the market, but we're quite conservative investors, right? We're looking for proven businesses, quality is the thing we look for. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we probably wait until companies have proven those characteristics um, you know, before we, we jump in. We're not really, our, our style is not to um, fish in the yet to be proven part of the small cap space. Sure. The hope that they may be quality businesses in the future. We'd like to see some evidence of that. So what we're looking at here is a couple of charts we just put together to show you what's going on between these businesses. This is purely the Adairs online business and they acquired a business called Mocker, which accelerated that part of their business. And really what we're saying here is, yes, Temple and Webster have a bigger online presence, so $160 million of revenue um, uh, in the second half of, of, sorry, the first half of um, fiscal 21 mm. against, you know, Adairs at, at sub 100. 
Um, but the overall business for Adairs is much bigger, right? Because as we talked about before, they have online and, and in-store as their two channels. The other big difference though, is that up until you know, a few halves ago, um, Temple and Webster wasn't profitable. They've got to that point of profitability and they got there prior to COVID. So COVID didn't make their business, it certainly helped them, but it didn't, it didn't you know, make their business. Um, whereas Adairs has been a strongly profitable business the whole way through, even while they've been investing and growing online. Um, mm. And they've seen this margin expansion through you know, this COVID period, which, which um, Temple and Webster have seen also, right? So we sort of sit there and, and look at it and say, well, you know, they're not a pure play, but Adairs seem pretty adept. Um, and now with their mocker acquisition at, at participating in that online space, they're doing so very profitably. Now, this is the overall business profit for Adairs. They don't break out margin by segment. But when they acquired the mocker business, it had a 20% plus margin, right? So it was already more profitable than, than Temple and Webster um, in, in a pure online sense. And then we look, obviously, as investors at what we're paying for that, right? So we're looking at these are consensus estimates just to remove, you know, any um, bias that Longwave might have on, on, you know, these numbers you can go and see in the marketplace. Um, and we're using 2022, right? So that, that kind of starts in a few months' time. Um, it, it probably won't be um, COVID unaffected because my guess is that the first half of fiscal 22, when people can't travel, they're still going to be, you know, over-consuming in retail. Um, but, you know, it starts to bring down those COVID numbers. Um, and we can see that, you know, the margins the market's expecting from those businesses are not too much different to where they are today, probably mm. lower actually than they achieved in the first half. The pricing of the stocks, though, um, you know, because it's a pure play and the market, you know, um, is, is fascinated with these type of businesses at the moment, um, every line we look at, Temple and Webster trades at a much higher multiple than Adairs, they're largely, you know, in the same business. And there's an argument to be made that Adairs omni-channel position um, does have some strategic advantages. Having stores is not just a liability. Um, and so, you know, being able to own Adairs, the overall business for 11 times PE versus 48 times you pay for Temple and Webster on these consensus numbers, you know, to us, that seems like a reasonable, um, you know, uh, bet to take. We think that Adairs is a good business at a very good price. Um, Temple and Webster looks like a, a, a decent business. Um, the, the pricing is very different, though. Is that no net debt, is it? Or... No debt at all. So, again, for so us... They balance carry it, all their stock themselves. Yes. Yep. Wow. No, there's no supply chain finance in there. No. no. And, and to be fair, with retailers, you, you don't want to see any debt because they do have this right to use liability that now goes on their balance sheet, which used to be called capitalized operating leases, which was off balance sheet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They have that operating leverage through the lease structure. So, yep. um, but it's just important to note, um, it's not like Adairs is trading it that multiple because they have a you know, very leveraged balance sheet. They're both kind of clean in that sense. Yeah, great example. What's the uplift of, if it's 2022 and you're saying consensus, the consensus is building in a uplift on EBITDA for next year, I assume? Yes, yeah. They'll, um, I'd have to check that. I don't think it's much because I think what you're seeing, and it may even be a bit lower than 21, um, yep. because there is this expectation that, that, that the bonus sales that these businesses got when people were kind of at home and updating their, 
you know, their homewares situation and, and the money that they were spending that they otherwise might spend traveling um, has artificially inflated it. So I think for both of them, it's pretty flat to next year, but I, you know, I have to check that and come back. So the current certainly, year PE wouldn't be too much different? No, 10. no, certainly for our, you know, the profile we build into most of these retailers is coming off 21, um, but then picking up that margin benefit of, of being an omni-channel retailer. Yep. Um, whereas, and that's probably where we differ to the market. We think that this process of, of the better specialty retailers who are adopting omni-channel, um, you know, online and in-store will, through time over the next three to five years, um, lead to them becoming better higher margin businesses. Um, the market probably has a view that we come off COVID and they go back to where they were before um, without thinking about, I guess, that, that change in, in mix. How do you think about something like, uh, they're all fantastic numbers, but supply chain for, say, Adairs, have they been obviously growing that quickly? The back end has to grow quickly as well. So you must see some retailers do the kind of supply chain better than others, or yeah, you uh, tend to uh, you tend to find out at the worst possible time that they're not doing it well. But um, <laughs> you know, some of the some of the leads, for example, Adairs are in the process of building um, uh, a much bigger warehouse in Melbourne to be able to facilitate, and they've got spare land next door. They could they could kind of double it again if they needed to through time. So. Um, you know, there's an assumption that, that supply chain management's a core competency, but, you know, you're exactly right. As they're moving into doing, you know, $200 million plus a year through online, do they have the infrastructure to do that? And so that's, they have been, you know, investing in that part of their business. Um, and that's what you need to see, right? Like none of this growth is free. You need to see companies making the, the investment so that they can deliver on that. You don't want to leak sales. Um, by, you know, having old warehouses that are overflowing and, and you can't actually capture the market. So you're saying that essentially online sales um, eventually will get to a point where it's in balance with physical sales? Is that kind of 50-50 or is it hard to tell at the moment? We drew, a, we drew a line there, but it is interesting in talking to some of these companies, um, that was our starting point. Like, let, let's think about 50-50 as a rough cut across. Mm. Someone like City Chick is very much moving to a, to a, um, a online brand, if you like, where offline stores are a far smaller part of their business. Adairs have actually said it possibly won't go north of 40%, right? One thing they're doing and they're taking advantage of at the moment, so there's lots of degrees of freedom that companies and executives can exploit, but one thing they're doing is to say, well, instead of paying less rent at a Westfield, for example, for the same size store, what we're finding is if we increase, if we move to a larger format store, um, we can actually do even better um, in our category in the shopping centre um, with possibly lower rent per square metre. So, you know, at the moment, I mean, this could change in, in a few years' time, but at the moment their sense is, is you know, 40, 60 online versus offline is about the right mix. Someone like Nick Scarley, you know, down the other end of this chart, you know, they have a view that very few people will buy a sofa without sitting on it. Um, that's, you know, I mean, how can you tell what it's like unless you sit on it? Therefore, you know, the, the in-store sales are going to be a key part of selling things like lounge suites and sofas. Um, yeah, maybe for lamps and side tables, the things that Temple and Webster and, and Matt Blatt and Mocker and other people sell, that, that could be true. But, but, you know, their category might always result in a lower penetration. Um, sure. 
And when you talk about innovation, innovation and disruption are pretty close cousins so once you get to 50 percent or thereabouts of online sales a lot of these bigger businesses would at least have a conversation about how they could do b2c themselves through an online mechanism drew mentioned dan murphy's but if you're fosters and somehow you can build an online delivery system straight from you know the brewery to your home and cut out that margin that dan murphy's it's you know, you will see disruption that we haven't really thought about yet in the sector too, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think, um, so, you know, if you think about something like JB Hi-Fi, almost all of their sales are third-party well-known brands, right? Hmm. So, um, you know what I mean? Samsung, um, Apple, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, someone like Adairs, a lot of it is their own product. Hmm. Um, and, and then in the middle, you have people like, um, and Premier Investments is probably the same. A lot of their clothing brands are their own brands, right? They're not they're not reselling third party brands. Yep. Accent Group, Baby Bunting, Super Retail, they all have stated strategies of increasing their own brand product. Is um, that right? Yep. Again, that's a you know you've got to balance that. Um, you know, if consumers come to buy Coke and all you sell is AC Cola. You may lose the sale, right? So there is a there is always a tension. Nothing wrong with AC Cola. But not if the consumer wanted <laughs> Coke, right? So, um, and, and so there's that. You know, you can't simply go, oh, this is my customer now. Um, yeah. uh, actually, there is that that tension between the manufacturer having the, the the products and brands. But yeah, I think we haven't yet seen that um, really for retailers who were just merchandising and delivering third-party brands and ranging third-party brands, do those brands start to go direct? Does Nike start to sell the shoes direct? Mm. You know, we saw a, in the offline world, it was really interesting seeing what happened with Disney Plus, right? So Disney content had been sold around the world through pay TV channels. Um, you know, some of the pay TV aggregators had a view that, you know, particularly down here, we're a small market, New Zealand's a small market. Um, why will they bother? Well, Disney's view was, it's just software. It doesn't matter. We're just like, we don't distributing some intangible product. Um, the value add is very different to what it was 20 years ago when getting to the consumer was hard. And they've just come out in these markets like Netflix and said, here's our library. Here's the app. Sign up with your credit card and you can watch it. And, and a way that phenomenal goes. growth, unbelievable growth. That's yeah. a, a good example of kind of B2C, isn't it? They've, yeah. Everyone said, ah, you can't do that. Why would you do that? And, you know, 12 months later, 18 months later, um, were there 80 million subscribers? Huh? Yeah. They cannibalized all their own revenue. Yeah. But they have, but yeah, that's, yeah, right. That, that's right. They sort of sit there going, we're so big. Disney are so big as an organization. <laughs> they can form the view that, okay, if, if Sky TV New Zealand's revenue to us, drops for two or three years because we're, we're ramping up our own subscribers, we can take that hit. I'm not going to go mm. broke. Um, you know, having a dip in, in revenue out of our New Zealand distribution agreement, we can get there. Is that true for, um, it may be true for Nike, maybe true for um, Fosters. Um, is it true for everyone? It, it's interesting, right? The experimentation will be really interesting to see how that plays out through time. Mm. Um, you know, you could argue like, the the sports codes you know like they can have a direct relationship with a lot of their viewers a lot of their supporters um you know yeah selling on the distribution rights to broadcast games there's a whole lot of things that could potentially change in the next 10 years 
um, and disrupt businesses. So the, the key to that is, is do you own something that's scarce um, and of value? Um, and, and if you do, you're in the box seat. Um, if you're a commodity, then actually having a distributor probably matters a lot more to, to have them help get your shelf space and get in front of the consumer. Drew, any last questions for David? And I think it's a great spot to, to wrap it up. Yeah, really appreciate, David, your, the work you've done on these slides and taking the time to speak to Drew and I. Um, I think it's been a fascinating session and one Drew and I will talk about for, for, for a long time going forward. So really appreciate, David. Uh, uh, thanks very much uh, for the viewers. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Uh, join us next week for, uh, for another episode uh, talking about... I'm not sure, Drew, do you know? We have Chris Joy from Coolabar talking about uh, residential property. Must be the hottest um, topic on retail and residential property. Yeah, be a good one. All right. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, David. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks.